In November of 2012, following a surge in asylum seekers arriving to Australia by boat, the Gillard government reopened refugee detention centers on Manus and Nauru. There is no water, the shower is not working. There is no water here. Less than a year later, the Rudd government declared Australia will never again accept asylum seekers who arrive by boat. From now on, any asylum seeker who arrives in Australia by boat will have no chance of being settled in Australia. Since then, thousands of refugees have been held captive in offshore detention. I think the Manus prison has a soul for no other reason than exercising their international and human right to seek asylum. Manus prison is a result of colonialist thinking. Manus prison is only a part of a very big system. Over the past five years, try to take our identity, try to reduce our characters and our personalities to some numbers. This is Baruz Bouchani, a Kurdish journalist, filmmaker, poet, and writer. As you may know, I have written uh, many articles about life on Manus Island and on Manus prison. And I have written many articles about this plight, the refugees' plight. Beirut fled Iran in 2013 in search of political asylum after his pro-Kurdish magazine was raided by the Iranian military. And after landing in Indonesia, attempted to cross into Australia. Asylum seekers taken to Christmas Island will be sent to Manus and elsewhere in Papua New Guinea for assessment of their refugee status. He was intercepted, detained on Christmas Island, and after one month, transferred to the recently reopened Manus Island Detention Center in August of 2013. For years and years, they called me MEG45. For the last five years, Beruz has been a prisoner on Manus Island, where he still is, and where he is communicating with me over WhatsApp. It is clear that the Australian government de- is doing crimes, serious crimes on Manusana and Nauru. During these years, Baru says he has witnessed the ways in which hundreds of imprisoned refugees continue to resist the policy of exile and torture. Sometimes something big happens, someone died, or sometimes police, immigration, guards attack our room. Four years after he was first detained, in late October of 2017, Papua New Guinea authorities closed the prison on Manus. All power, water, and food was withheld from the refugees, and the PNG military took control of the area. But nearly 600 men, including Baruz, refused to leave the center, saying they feared for their safety amongst the local PNG population who opposes their presence. A 23-day siege followed. 
refugees on Manus turned to Twitter to document police and armed immigration officers using fists and iron bars to smash their way through the detention center. Dragging refugees and asylum seekers onto buses to take them away. This is Peter Dutton. Peter Dutton has confirmed that this police operation... By the 23rd of November, 2017, all remaining men had been removed, more than 300 by force, and relocated to new accommodation in East Lurangao. It was during this time that Beruz finished his book. No friend but the mountains. Writing from Manus Prison. Of course that this uh, book, writing this book, is an act of survival. Painstakingly written, one message at a time, on a mobile phone and smuggled out of Manus Prison through the messenger service WhatsApp, Beirouz says no friend but the mountains is a statement of defiance over his five years of incarceration and exile. I think this book is like a victory because against this system, we can't say that by writing this book and doing this kind of uh, artworks against this system, uh, we say that still we are alive. Still, we are human. Still, we have identity. By writing and by creating artwork, I survive. And I cannot imagine that if I wouldn't be able to write, how I could be able to survive after five years. This is Think Digital Futures. I am Miles Herbert. Even though Manus Island's detention center was shut down in 2016 after it was ruled unconstitutional and illegal by Papua New Guinea's Supreme Court, there is still no timeline for moving detainees like Beruz off the island. Most reside in East Lurangao, in what the Australian and PNG government call a refugee accommodation center. But what Beruz says is still a prison. It was really hard. It was really hard because we were, most of the time we were hungry and we were living in starvation. Beruz began writing from the very beginning of his exile and incarceration. On a phone, he smuggled into the center. I wrote all the book. On WhatsApp and send it. And he persevered after his phones were repeatedly confiscated and stolen. Anytime they could come and take our property. Um, uh, actually, they did many times. I mean, the guards, uh, they attacked our rooms and took our property. During this time, his phone was a lifeline to the outside world. So even though he was allowed to write it down and had access to pen and paper, Beruz chose to write his book within the safety of his smartphone. They attacked our rooms and they took our, all of our belongings, our uh, 
properties. So imagine that if I would write this book uh, on paper, so I definitely would, would lose it. He shot a film and wrote articles on it, texting them to the world beyond the prison fences. Despite being traumatized at the loss of friends, and despite the constant shortages of food and water, Beruz and his phone were always there, helping us see the atrocities happening off the coast of Australia that without him would go unnoticed. This book is a result of five years thinking about this system, thinking about this prison, and thinking about this question that why and how did they create this uh, prison camp. From the very beginning, journalists have actively been prevented from accessing the detention centers on Manus Island and Nauru. Successive Australian governments have worked hard to keep the day-to-day ongoings in the detention centers under wraps. And the Australian federal government's asylum-seeker policy has been reduced to a simple three-word message. Stop the boats. Yes, I want to be the minister to make sure that we keep the boats stopped. But I do want to be the most compassionate thing you can do is stop the boats. I've been able to stop the boats. And so the government's first priority is to make sure we don't allow the boats to restart. But for the last five years, Beruz has been our eyes and ears on the island. If I uh, was not in this uh, place, if, if I was not in Manus Island and in Manus Prison, uh, definitely I would write a, a different novel. It's not in the government's interest and doesn't serve their political agenda to have public sympathy towards these detainees. We have a political agenda that works very well in terms of demonising asylum seekers. It's won elections. So to actually have that overturned and actually be able to garner public sympathy and outrage over the conditions in detention centres would not serve governments and opposition parties very well. This is Linda Leung. I'm an associate professor and an honorary associate here at UTS. During a moment in time when wars and persecution have driven more people from their homes than ever before, with more than 65 million people being displaced worldwide, of whom 21 million were refugees, Linda's research is exploring the role of technology in the refugee experience. This was work that started in 2005 when I began visiting Villawood Detention Centre. Can you tell me about the first time you ever visited Villawood? It's a really strange place. It looks like a housing estate. It has this little kind of park area or courtyard in it, which, yeah, and when you approach it, you can see that, but what's between you and the park is all this chain mesh fencing um, and barbed wire. It's a bit, yeah, it's quite 1984. Basically, it just looks like a prison. There's no difference, 
really to to a prison. And in fact, prisoners actually have more facilities and less prohibitions when you've actually committed a crime and, and been jailed for it than someone who's seeking asylum here has committed no crime and is being detained indefinitely. On Manus, Baruza's phone gives him a voice while he is being detained. And in Villawood, Linda saw the same thing. Mobile phones were used to contact family, reach out to other refugees and advocates. But while technology like a smartphone in the hands of detainees provides a window to the world outside the detention center, in Villawood and in detention centers around the country, the technology surrounding them was actively shutting them out. It's an environment where you can see technology as being used as a form of power. So all the kind of high-tech gadgets there are there to separate detainees from the outside world. There's technologies of surveillance, of containment, and they're being used against detainees. They're also being used to keep members of the public away from detainees. And in a digitized and heavily networked society, keeping the public out is not as easy as just putting up fences. In the Villawood Detention Center, Manus, Nauru, and across the country, access to mobile phones has always been limited by the Australian government, if not completely banned. The detainees weren't allowed to have mobile phones. They, would, they were only given landline telephones, sort of like public telephones, um, that they had to queue up for and pay money for. How does not having a mobile phone shut you out from the rest of the world? Well, if you look at it, what's the point in having landlines available in which they can call whoever they want, but not allowing them to have a mobile phone, even if it had no... At that time, many... Refugees are the subject of a huge amount of news coverage, but this news is rarely for them. Australia has an unhealthy fear of boat people. That's what one of our Even more balanced coverage tends to portray them as powerless victims of war or climate change. This is a story about people who stand to lose everything. People who so having a smartphone is not necessarily crucial in terms of information gathering because advocates say the media is just not doing a good enough job. But rather... Phones are a way to accurately convey the reality of the refugee experience. So if you only have a landline... You would not be able to create any content of your own. You couldn't start a a blog, for example, right? One would say very arbitrary rules about, you know, being able to consume online content but not being able to produce any. So there's a question around... What's the relevance of that other than another way of arbitrarily exercising power and control over these detainees? Well, is that in a way a type of silencing? Of course. Of course. It's about silencing and and it's it's about not um, keeping the outside world separated from from the world inside the detention centre. And it was probably deliberate, very deliberate.
I want to take the readers to inside the prison and live with us and understand our situation and understand the, uh, you know, this system. I hope that readers, uh, you know, you know, take and understand the soul of uh, Manus Prison. I trust in literature and I believe in literature and uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, I use this language, literature uh, language, to keep this piece of history forever. So do those phones kind of act as a lifeline for the detainees? Yes, I do, because um, so mobiles definitely made it easier to to have to to stay connected with the outside world and stay connected with their with their networks. There are detainee accounts of them using a mobile phone to ring the police, for example. So where riots broke out in the detention centre or they felt that guards were committing a crime. Mobile phones were used to call the police. So that made it much, yeah, much easier to get in touch with authorities or to get in touch with their friends and advocates. And as to why this lifeline is continually taken from them, why their ability to tell their own story is so often denied... Many of um, the interviewees were sort of just puzzled as to why why the Australian government wouldn't want that, wouldn't want people who potentially would be living here to to better understand Australian life while they're being detained. You know, why why couldn't they have access to education while they was you know living here, floundering in a detention centre? Many of them saw the opportunity to to do something positive with the time they spent in a detention centre and they just couldn't understand um, why it, it simply wasn't allowed. Do you think that access to digital technologies, mobile phones, internet should be a human right? Oh, absolutely. The U- United Nations thinks that's a human right, you know. So that the um, the right to the right to information, the right to communicate, is a human right. And so, by by default, that means the right to to technologies that allow you to um, to seek information and and to communicate as well is a human right. Yes. When you've been in detention for five years and you've lost all hope of ever being released, the last thing on your mind is engaging with the Australian media or the Australian public. They feel that they've been forgotten and they feel that no one's listening, so why bother?
and the cases of severe depression, self-harm, absolute dejection, loss of hope. And that's something a mobile phone can't fix overnight. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You, you pretty much have to retain the rage to make use and leverage what's available to you. No, actually, I'm, uh, I don't like technology. I don't like, uh, you know, uh, phone or, and I don't like to spend my time on computer or phone or something like this. But uh, I, yeah, I, I have to do it. I have to work through this phone and, you know, I have communicate with outside of this island through my WhatsApp and through my phone. I think sometimes I feel that when I get freedom, I break this phone. <laughs> and uh, yeah, because, yeah, but now in this situation, I must use this phone and live in this phone. You have been listening to Think Digital Futures. Thank you to Buruz Buchani, whose book, No Friend But the Mountains, you can find at your local bookshop. If you want to hear more from Buruz, head over to 2SER.com and listen to his conversation with producer Andrew Popel on Final Draft. Thank you as well to Linda Leung, whose book, Technologies of Refuge and Displacement, Rethinking Digital Divides, helped inspire this episode. And you just wrote a book. I did just write a book, although it's it's the culmination of a lot of, you know, years and years of worth of works. If you liked the show, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help other people find the show. I have been Miles Herbert, and I'll catch you guys again next week. It is very interesting that a refugee wrote a book in a very hard, uh, harsh condition. And it is very interesting. Look that this man, he is brave. He wrote this book through WhatsApp and sent it out. It is incredible. You know, I don't uh, deny, I don't deny that uh, a part of this is has, uh, this story is very interesting. Yeah, of course, it is interesting and in some ways it is incredible that someone write a book uh, in this way. But I think it is only a small part of this story and for me it's not important. For me it's not important. For me important thing is that people uh, understand this book as a piece of art.